and I'm listening from the UK. We all want our children to lead fulfilled lives, but we're surrounded by conflicting information and clickbait headlines that leave us wondering what to do as parents. The Your Parenting Mojo podcast distills scientific research on parenting and child development into tools parents can actually use every day in their real lives with their real children. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes are released and get a free infographic on the 13 reasons your child isn't listening to you and what to do about each one, just head on over to yourparentingmojo.com forward slash subscribe. And pretty soon, you're going to get tired of hearing my voice read this intro. So come and record one yourself at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash record the intro. Hello and welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. Today we have a question from listener Kelsey. So let's hear the question from her first. Hi, Jen. My name is Kelsey. I live in Southern Illinois and I love your show. Lately, you've had me thinking about capitalism and its entwined role in my mindset and my choices. It runs deep. Recently, I have become aware of how I answer the question, why does daddy have to go to work, is probably helping to lay a capitalist foundation for my kids. I usually answer, so we can live in our house and have food and go to Target and on vacation. And sometimes I throw in because he loves his job. Responding to their question with to feed the capitalist machine seems a little hyperbolic for a three and six-year-old. I do want to set the expectation with my kids that we are not generationally wealthy. And if they want a life with less of a financial burden, a well-paying job is necessary. But I also don't want them to think that a paycheck is the only goal. Things like enjoying work and balance are just as important and that their value does not come from what they can do or earn from someone else or for someone else. And while we are not generationally wealthy, we are a white cisgendered middle-class family and working hard isn't the final answer for a lot of other people. I realize these are deep rabbit holes for a three and six-year-old, but as a recovering capitalist, I know that the early messages lay the foundation. So, How do you honestly, but age appropriately, answer the question, why does daddy have to go to work? Thanks so much. Okay, so this is actually a pretty hard question to answer, even though it sounds like it's something super simple. What the child is asking has multiple layers, and what you want to tell her has multiple layers as well. So I have some thoughts that I want to share, and I also asked my daughter Karis some questions about it as well to help us to understand how a child might be feeling about this issue. Karis was eight and a half when I asked her this. It's been a few months now that I've been trying to get this episode together. But the feelings that she's having may be similar to what a younger child has, but can't potentially express. So let's go ahead and hear from Karis about her ideas on capitalism and the amount of time that I'm working and those kinds of things. So she initially didn't want to record this conversation with me because she's in a phase where a lot of things feel embarrassing. But then the same day that I asked her to do it, I was on a call with someone on my team and she was pretty frustrated about it. And so I asked her again if she'd be willing to do it. And she said yes. And so she was still feeling pretty shy. She didn't really want to talk a lot, but I still think the conversation is helpful. And she does like to do a bit of baby talk these days. So she says me instead of I. And and this was not scripted or rehearsed in any way. It was completely off the cuff. So here are Karis's thoughts on this. Okay. Do you want to say hi? No. Say hi. (laughs) So we had talked earlier about me having a conversation with you about capitalism. And you said you didn't want to do it, right? 
And then I was just on a phone call and you seemed really frustrated with how long I was on the phone for, right? And all of a sudden you were more willing to talk about it. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Except for right now. So I'm wondering if I can ask you a few questions. Okay. Nonverbal communication doesn't work so well on podcast. Ask me questions. (laughs) Okay. So my first question is, do you know what capitalism is? Not really. It's okay if you don't. What do you, what, do you have any ideas about what it is? No. Does it have anything to do with peanuts? <laughs> Does it have anything to do with stuffed animals? Yes. Oh, what does it have to do with stuffed animals? You have to buy stuffed animals. That's true. We have to buy peanuts too. Well, you can shake lots of the trees. Uh, okay. You can't just shake true. stuffies and trees. Yeah. Okay, so it has to do with money. Mm-hmm. What do we use money for? Buying stuff. Mm-hmm. Any particular kinds of stuff that you come that come to your mind? Food, mm-hmm. furniture, houses, cars. Okay. okay. Air. Well, you can compress water in. Well, you can compress air into water, so technically you can buy water. So technically, <laughs> you can buy air too. Okay. And then peanut peanut bags, there will be some air in them. That's true. So, yeah, actually you can't buy air. Okay. <laughs> do you know what kind of work I do? Help. Help. Anyone in particular? Not really sure. Okay. So you know I spend my time on calls mm-hmm. and a fair bit on the computer as well, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, pardon? A fair bit. <laughs> so how do you feel when I'm on a call? We want you to get off the call, show me, show me, can play with you. Yeah. Okay. And so you you know why I'm on the call, right? So that I can help parents. Yeah. So I'm thinking about the things that we spend money on. Yeah. Yeah. And also that there are a lot of other kids who have parents who work outside the home and who are gone for many hours a day, maybe 10 or 12 or more hours a day. Too long. You think it's way too long. Yeah. What would it be like if I was gone 10 or 12 hours a day? (laughs) He wouldn't like that. No, you're face down in the pillows. So do you think we have a lot of money or a little bit of money or somewhere in between? I can't hear you. You're facing. Somewhere in between. Okay. And are there times when you wish we had more money? Mm-hmm. Like when? Well, I wish we carried around more money when I see these those people on the street. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you wish that we had that, uh, that I carry cash around with me so that we could help folks that we see. Okay. What else would you do if we had more money than we have? Buy more candy and get a cannon so we could make it rain candy. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. That sounds fun. You also talked about having a huge house, right? So that 
you, what was it? You can fill fill it with toys and never have to clean it or something. How did yeah. that go? So that everybody could live together. Everybody who? Like everybody in the world could live in one house. Oh. That's where I can pack those doors in the house. And then outside, there was a garden that had a bunch of plants according where it was. Okay. With a bunch of animals in. Okay. So if you got to decide what happened to all of the money in the world, what would you do with it? Give this amount out to everybody for one year. Mm. And then do it the same the next year. So nobody got not too little money and not too much money. Mm-hmm. That sounds fair. Yeah. So what I'm trying to understand is you've been thinking about things that you would like to have if we had more money, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that we can get more money is if I work more. Right. And <laughs> I can see that you don't like that. So what I'm trying to understand is what you're thinking about the amount of time I spend working and the money that we get from working. Would you want me to work less if we could play more mm-hmm. and, and we would have less money? A little bit less. Okay. Or at least you could work the same amount, but not on calls, just text. <laughs> what is it about me being on calls that you don't like? Well, you can't listen to me at all. We can't even ask you anything. Mm-hmm. So when he wants to ask you something, he has to wait for sometimes three hours. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you don't like having to wait to mm-hmm. tell me what you're thinking or ask me something. Mm-hmm. Okay. Would you want me to work more so that we could have more money? Mm, you want me to work one the night. <laughs> so it doesn't affect you. Yeah. Okay. How do you feel when you have to wait to ask me something? Frustrating. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sad wishing we didn't have to do this just to get money. Hmm. It would be nice if people could just stop from doing this and there could still be shops that involve money, but maybe we could start up because I'm just checking if there are any people that have the things we need first. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we do that already, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So but Not many families do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially here. Oh, okay. So you think that if more families lived that way, then we would be able to find things that we need more and we wouldn't have to buy as much stuff. Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That would be cool. Do you have any ideas about what kind of work you might want to do when you're older? Swimming. Swimming? Really? I was not expecting you to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse you. You want to swim for work? Okay. Is there anything, any other ideas that you've had about the kind of work you want to do? Fighting and barking. Mm. Yeah, I hear that's very lucrative. That means you can earn lots of money. Not cleaning. 
<laughs> not cleaning. You don't want to clean <laughs> your stuff or anyone else's. Gardening. Mm. Okay. Do you have any idea how much those jobs might pay? Money? Yeah. Do you have any idea if they would pay you enough to buy the things you want to buy? Mm. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything else you want to say about my work or anything to do with money? No. <laughs> Please turn the pillows again. <laughs> Thanks for sharing your ideas with me. Appreciate it. Okay, so now that we've heard from Kelsey, we've heard from Karis, I want to start thinking about how are we going to understand what's going on here? So let's look at what Karis said first. You know, firstly, she's arguing for a universal basic income. She wants to take all the money in the world and divide it up equally. And she also seems to have taken on my ideas about buying things as a last resort and borrowing or making do or thrifting or sharing our extra resources with others so that we can then ask them when we need things before we buy. Not in a kind of tit for tat, but just in a, we have extra, would you like? And then when they have extra, they go ahead and offer to us. And so we do do all of these things on a regular basis. The next idea is that children think what they see regularly is normal, and they will protest if it doesn't meet their needs all of the time, but they really have no concept of what other people are doing. So I have tried to explain to Karis on multiple occasions that some people's parents leave the house for 12 hours at a time, multiple days a week, <laughs> sometimes seven days a week, and I think she just doesn't really have a way of comprehending that. She doesn't want me to be on calls so that I can play with her, even though I'm not playing with her most of the time when I'm not on calls, but she just likes to be able to ask me for things and about things that she's interested in. And she seems to get a lot of value out of just being in close proximity to me, even if we're not actually interacting. So she perceives the separation while I'm on the phone to be very difficult, even though you know I'm just in the next room and she has another parent around most of the time that she can ask for things. And so coming back to Kelsey's original question, I don't think Kelsey's child is necessarily asking why daddy has to go to work. What the child is really asking is why daddy isn't available to play now or today or on many days. And of course, we have to acknowledge the heteronormative approach that's going on in this family and that in every family, it isn't the case that daddy goes to work, but historically, it has been the most common pattern over the last hundred years or so that daddy's going to work and mommy's staying at home with the children. And so I'm not sure if Kelsey's working or not and if there are other factors at play. And of course, you know, the answers could work just as well if it's mommy that goes to work. But just want to kind of acknowledge that structure there. So I think the things that we can be asking or we can imagine the child is asking as well is, you know, does daddy like to work? Does daddy like to work more than daddy likes playing with me? And when I was thinking about those questions, I was also thinking of a book that I read recently called What Kids Really Want That Money Can't Buy, Tips for Parenting in a Commercial World, and it's by Betsy Taylor. And so the first chapter is really just kind of an introduction to the book, and it describes how the Center for the New American Dream surveyed a couple thousand young people and asked, what is it that you really want that money can't buy? And uh, chapter two is where it starts getting into the things that kids want, and that chapter is called You. <laughs> and it opens up with two quotes, one from Harrison, age five, who says, I would want my dad to not go to work. I would want daddy to play games with me. 
And then that's followed by Katie, a seventh grader, who says, I wish I could have a dad that did things with me and understands when I need someone. And so, of course, once again, <laughs> we're seeing these heteronormative in attitudes here. And I should acknowledge that book was written, I think, 20 years ago. So it is a little bit dated by this time. And perhaps hopefully now there's a more equivalency in uh, the number of dads that are working with the number of moms that are working. But, but you can pretty clearly see here that we're talking about the beginning of the book. This is the thing that kids want most of all. And what that thing is, is you. And so when we're thinking about this, I think we also really need to more clearly see the choices that we're making. And this conversation originally came up in the Free Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group because Kelsey posted the question there and a bunch of people responded to it. And I could see there was so much more potential to understand this that I asked her to record the video so that we could explore the idea here on the podcast. And so in the Facebook discussion, I think quite a few folks did actually comment. We had a pretty lively discussion about it, but this part didn't really get fully addressed, the idea of the choices that we're making. And so we don't have to live in a nice house or to even live in a house, right? If we're living in a house or an apartment now, we've made a choice to do that. And many of us do prioritize needs for safety and comfort over needs for autonomy in how we spend our time. And that is a choice, right? We're choosing to not have as much autonomy over how we spend our time so that we can prioritize our needs for safety and comfort. And there are some folks who don't get to make that choice and through their own choice or not through their own choice, right? And that decision has been made for them by somebody else and that those folks are unhoused. And clearly that intersects a lot with the topics that we spend a lot of time talking about here, right? Capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy. So when a person can't exchange their skills for enough money to pay rent, that means capitalism has really failed us. So there've been some articles in the New York Times over the last few months about how you cannot get a place in Los Angeles with Section 8 vouchers, which is the vouchers that the government gives you if they're subsidizing your housing. So you should be able to exchange those for housing in a lot of different places. And the landlords say, no, we don't accept Section 8. So, and of course, that's also what that's linked to is the fact that in our culture, we value certain kinds of work, particularly the kinds of work that generate more capital over other kinds of work and particularly caregiving. That tends to be the kinds of jobs that women are in and particularly black and brown women. So we have these value hierarchy where we value the work that white men do over the work that black and brown women do. And of course, everybody else sort of fits in into that hierarchy at some point. And that's really kind of a failure of capitalism as I see it. So what we can think about doing is opting out of a patriarchal system that wants to control us, right? Employers want to decide, or they do decide how we spend our time, who we're working with, what we're doing, how we're doing it. And the less you earn, the more that is true. So free housing often comes with this lack of autonomy as well. Sometimes there might be income tests or drug tests, right? You have to be tested and and approved to be able to get the handout that comes with the vouchers or with the the funding that, that gives you access to discounted housing. When people of some races are finding it harder to get jobs because they have names that don't sound white or they're discriminated against on the job or they're less likely to get a mortgage because they're black, then that's white supremacy in the form of racism. And so all of these factors are coming into play in this capitalist system that we're thinking about, why does daddy have to go to work? And then sort of as a a next idea, you talk about wanting to impress upon your children that if they want a life with less of a financial burden, then a well-paying job is necessary. And so the thing I want to just kind of gently challenge on is, is it? 
Is a well-paying job necessary? How do you define well-paying? How do you define a financial burden? When we think about an intergenerational home where we have multiple generations of people living together, there's minimal additional burden of having a person living in a home. The burden is created by societal expectations based in capitalism that say that you have to live, move out and live on your own or you're a failure. If you're living with your parents after age 18 or 21, you're a failure. And so if you want to be perceived as successful, you better go and live by yourself. And that's how the system makes us keep buying more stuff. <laughs> you know, this burden doesn't just appear, it builds over time. So we move out, we start renting a place, we buy a car, maybe we travel around, then we want to buy a house, we want to fill it up with nice things, we want to buy a nicer car, travel to more expensive places, we're having children, we want to give our children the skills to get ahead in life. And so the burden comes from the stuff that we buy from all those decisions that we make at every step along the way to say, I want something more. I want something better. And if we buy less of that stuff, we will have less of a burden. And thus we will have more autonomy to do what we want to do with our time. And so I've seen this play out super clearly in our family over the last couple of years, right? We were in the fortunate position to pay off our cars. One of them we paid off every time. The other one we paid off in a lump sum because I find large monthly payments to be very destabilizing, right? Like I don't like having a large amount of money go out every month and to feel responsible for that. I would rather pay it off in one go and then have a lower amount that's coming out of the bank account every month. And so we paid off the car and... What we essentially did then was my husband was having some back issues and decided that a new mattress was going to be the thing that helped. And in, in all honesty, it has helped, but it was a very expensive mattress. <laughs> and then around the same time, our stove broke. We had the utility come in because we could smell gas and they tried to fix it. They thought they fixed it once. They came back because it was still smelling like gas and they said, you need a new stove. And so we we're just thinking, well, do I want to buy a 10-year stove or do I want to buy a stove that I'm going to have forever? And I don't like wasting. And so I've always said, I want to buy the thing I'm going to have forever. And so we now have this mattress and we have the stove and now we're making payments on the mattress and the stove instead of on the car. So I very much see these decisions that I'm making now. Now, before when we bought the car, I didn't even see that so clearly, right? Now I'm seeing that I am replacing one payment with another payment. And when those payments are done, I'm really going to be thinking hard. Do we really want to take on another payment? Or would it be nice to be a little less stressed over how much money is leaving every month? And I will acknowledge that we are somewhat restricted in our ability to make decisions by the housing stock that's available to us, right? There is not enough intergenerational housing available in this country, in the US, and in many other places as well. And so if the only thing you can buy is a single family home, then you're not going to be able to reduce the amount uh, that you spend every month as much as you might like to. But I did discover this interesting book. It was called The Overworked American. It's pretty old as well. 1992, it was published by Harvard-based economist Juliet Shore. And she argued that we could reproduce a 1948 standard of living measured in terms of marketed goods and services in less than half the time it took in 1948. And it's probably even less now, right? Because that book is 20 years old. So we could have chosen the four-hour day or working a year of six months right? Six months working, six months off. Or imagine this, every worker in the United States could now be taking every other year off from work with pay. And of course, that would require some redistribution of money. Lower paid workers would need to work longer right now under this system, but with a universal basic income, that wouldn't be the case. 
And so I guess what the, the point that I want to make here is that these are choices that we make. And every time we're making a choice to buy something, uh, particularly something that we don't have the money to pay for right now, that is a choice to spend more time working. That is a choice to spend less time with our child. And we may decide that is a choice that we prefer to make, but let's at least go into it with our eyes open, right? Let's make this be a choice rather than just putting one foot in front of another and having it not be a choice. I do think it also somewhat depends on how much we like our jobs, which is really as much about mindset as anything else. It's possible to find joy and value in almost any job. And I'm thinking, I can't remember if it was a study or a book that I read uh, about a custodian who really saw their role in helping patients in a hospital to heal. And we would rearrange the pictures (laughs) on the walls in this hospital so that the patients would have new things to look at. So this person was not a doctor, was not directly involved in the healing of the person, but was very much uh, seeing themselves in a role of healing and probably actually did have some meaningful impact on the patient's healing as well. So that really comes with the mindset, right? Is the mindset, I'm going to show up here and I'm going to mop the floor, or is the mindset, the work that I do here has value and I'm going to really lean into that value. And of course, I'm assuming that rearranging the pictures is probably something the custodian did on their own time because it was not financially valued by the hospital. There's probably that layer to it as well. There is absolutely honor in physical labor, although I think that maybe it wouldn't be as hard if we paid more for food so that workers could be paid enough to live on without working as many hours. Another thing we should be looking at is how much we enjoy our jobs. And I do enjoy my job. I wouldn't stop doing it so that I could be available to Karis all the time because I think we get different kinds of fulfillment from the work that we do than we do out of being with children. But I work 12-hour days most days because most people don't pay to listen to podcasts. And I mean, frankly, I wouldn't work as much if my need for safety was met, by which I mean my need for financial safety. And, and we'll say some more about that in a minute. And that is something that you do have a lot of power over, right? You, who is listening to this, <laughs> has a lot of power over my ability to meet my needs. Because I think at last count, something like 12 out of the hundreds of thousands of people who listen to the podcast donate on a regular basis to pay for the time that I spend making it. So just want to sort of plant that nugget there. (laughs) I, I think also it's important to acknowledge that having money to escape or to not depend on government or know that you can get through a disaster is, when I talk about meeting a need for safety, that's really what I'm talking about. And so money can make some challenges easier. And I'm thinking, for example, when there were wildfires were super bad here in California a couple of years ago, we were able to buy an air purifier. And my community manager was also in California and did not have a lot of money. And so I bought her an air purifier as well. And also we should acknowledge using purifiers creates greenhouse gases that warm the planets. <laughs> so there's, there's a, a cyclical nature to some of this. There's a lot of research on the impacts of Hurricane Katrina, where low-income neighborhoods are concentrated in the more flood-prone areas, more likely to be close to industrial facilities that are leak and that are spilling during floods. So the places in those neighborhoods are, the owners are less likely to carry flood insurance. The more affluent people were more easily able to relocate to safer areas. So there were a lot of black residents who didn't have the money or the transportation to leave New Orleans, and they were stereotyped as wanting a government handout. So definitely money can help us in some difficult circumstances. But also, I think we should acknowledge that money doesn't guarantee safety. 
And one of the examples I was thinking about actually came from a person in the group who said something along the lines of, you know, my parents or my grandparents, probably my grandparents, were in the Holocaust. And so I always want to make sure that I have money to make sure that my family is safe. And yet I I was thinking about the ship, the St. Louis in 1939 that sailed to the U.S. And there were almost a thousand Jews on board who paid their way onto the ship right before World War II started and they were escaping Nazi Germany. And it took two weeks, and I'm actually not sure if it's the St. Louis or the St. Louis, maybe it's St. Louis, to sail from Germany to Cuba. And most of the passengers had visas, but Cuba revoked all but 28 of those visas that the passengers had bought in Germany. And so the, the ship couldn't dock. And so the ship sails onto Miami. And then the U.S. immigration authorities reject the ship from docking. And the State Department sent the passengers a telegram telling them to get visas and to wait their turn before they could be admitted into the country. And so I think it sailed up from Miami to New York. And as it's turned to sail back to Europe, it's accompanied by a Coast Guard ship to catch any desperate passengers who might decide to jump. And the ship had also applied to land in Canada, but it was rejected there as well. Eventually, Great Britain and the Netherlands and Belgium and France agreed to accept the refugees in exchange for payments by the Jewish Joint Distribution Committee. The ones who ended up in Britain were safe, but about half of the people on the continent only survived the Holocaust. So money did help in some respects, right? Those people were able to buy visas, but it ultimately couldn't get them to where they wanted to go, and they ended up having to go back because of, I mean, frankly, just absolutely heartless decisions by people in Cuba, in the US, and in Canada. And then, yes, money did help once they got back again, but it wasn't their money, right? It wasn't their savings that helped them. It was other people stepping in. And of course, there are obvious racist racist ideas coming out in these decisions that were made about keeping too many Jews out and not letting them in. And so we can see this also in some research I was reading in studies of black middle-class neighborhoods in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, where a lot of people weren't able to rebuild because a state grant to provide funds for rebuilding required that the state offer the lower of the pre-storm value or an estimate of the rebuilding costs. And so homes in the black middle-class neighborhoods are valued between a quarter and half of homes in the white middle-class neighborhoods. And so savings, yeah, they would have helped those residents a little bit, but rebuilding policies that weren't racist would have helped a whole lot more. So (laughs) I know that we're digging super deep into all this. I also want to acknowledge that the care work is work. And in fact, it's work that's performed for free or that is undervalued, that the whole capitalist system is riding on. And so if women didn't perform this work for free, and if mostly black and brown women didn't perform this labor for not so much money so that white women can have careers, then the entire capitalist system would just fall apart. And there's a fantastic book called Feminism for the 99% that really digs more into that. And it's super short, super slim, if you, if you did want to take a look at that. And I was also thinking about a parent, JD, who contributed a story for my book, and he told me that his dad had accumulated a lot of money to insulate himself from the relationships that he would otherwise have needed to take care of him, right? So he's building up these these big savings account and lots of investments and other things as well so that he can pay for the kind of care that would otherwise have been performed for free in relationships. And so when there's no guarantee of things like time off after childbirth and the national average cost for infant care, it can be up to 36% of a household's income, there's something wrong here. And it's not that this stuff is costing so much because teachers are so well compensated, right? They're not. 
So the system is not helping us to correctly value the kinds of skills that we need to have a well-functioning society. Many parents can't even find childcare, right? 83% of parents surveyed in 2018 said that they were having a hard time even finding childcare. What are we supposed to do about this, right? (laughs) Well, the path that I see is to try to find as many choices as we can in a system that's deliberately restricting our choices. So if we're choosing to live in a house and to have food to eat that comes from grocery stores and electricity and daycare for our children, then yeah, daddy does have to go to work or mama has to go to work or one of two mamas, one of two dads, whatever is the family structure. And that is a choice that many of us are going to make. But beyond that, we have a lot more kind of real choices once those basic needs are met. There are so many more real choices. And maybe we can help our children to be more conscious about those choices than we have been. So maybe when they're older, they might choose to live with us for an extended period of time. And when they're younger, we're not preparing them for the day when you're going to move out. (laughs) That it's just kind of accepted. You may leave, you may not leave. If you stay, maybe you'll contribute a small amount of money or other non-financial resources to our family. Maybe we can create communities where we can provide for a good deal of each other's needs so that we don't have to have as anywhere near as much money as we do when we're paying for services all the time. Another thing that we can do is to talk with our children about capitalism. And we don't have to make this a huge deal, right? It can just be something as simple as daddy goes to work so that we can afford to live in a house and buy food and other things that we need and want, right? So we're we're not sugarcoating the fact that this is a decision here. We're making it clear that this is a decision. And so there are some of these things that we that meet our needs, and there are also some of these things that we want. And I would say, you know, also bring it up at other times in response to other things your child is, is curious about. So Karis didn't just arrive at this idea of a universal basic income, and it's not something I've ever told her that I think we should have, but we've had a lot of conversations about what we would do, what she would do if she had more money. And I have to say, she has at times, more than once, said that the first thing she would buy is a house big enough that she could only play in each room once <laughs> and never have to clean it up. We also talk about when we don't have enough money to do something. So what would we want to do to trade off so that we can do something that she's interested in? There was a period of time when she was, I think about three or four, when she was noticing a lot of tents on the side of the road. And she would ask me, why are there people camping on the side of the road? And so obviously at that point, that's a massive opening to talk about capitalism (laughs) and hopefully not to lecture about capitalism, but to explain why some people have less access to money. Obviously this has links to white supremacy, that the work that some people do is valued less, that some people face prejudices. So they are not able to get jobs that they would otherwise be qualified for. They're not able to access benefits and services that they would be qualified for. When we're having conversations with our children about things like universal basic income, we can also point out the objections that people have to the universal basic income, right? A lot of people think that, well, if you guaranteed everybody income, they'd just be lazy. We wouldn't ever have any innovation because what incentive would people have to innovate when their well-being is assured? (laughs) And there are plenty of people who argue, well, when your well-being is assured, then you don't have to spend as much time and energy just getting your basic needs met, and then you can be even more innovative. Maybe you won't be is rewarded financially as much as you might otherwise be, maybe that's still okay. We should also talk about the objections to capitalist alternatives, right? And lack of innovation is one of those things. But I always want to ask, you know, are the problems that capitalism is solving 
really the ones that need to be solved. And I always think to that awful program, Shark Tank, where the people invent something and then they come on the show and they try and convince the sharks to fund their idea. And 95% of what they're funding, what they're asking for money for, is a widget that they're making in China for five cents. And they found a way to sell it for $29.95 and they want money so they can scale up the production. And either that or it's some sort of service that is trying to make life a little bit easier for rich and middle-class white people, are these the problems that we need to have solved? Frankly, my answer would be no. We can use the things that they notice, right? If there are new buildings being built where there used to be fields, why is that? Well, people were willing to pay a lot of money so they could build those buildings there. And the farmer decided, you know what, I would rather have this chunk of money right now and not do this work anymore. And so then the land use changes. Why do some toys cost more than others? When they're maybe made of plastic or metal, how does that impact the amount that they're going to cost? How does it impact how long they're going to last for? When they're asking why some people's homes are bigger than others, we can ask if they think it's fair. If they don't think it's fair, how would they do things differently? Something that we talk a lot about is should everyone pay the same price for things? So one day we were coming home from Karis's Not School program and she was saying that she thinks it would be fair if everybody was to pay the same amount. And I said, well, that's interesting that you think that. I have a bit of a different opinion, right? Because Not School actually has sliding scale pricing. And so I was explaining how capitalism is really kind of like a race where some people are starting at the starting line and other people are starting way behind the starting line. And it's like saying, okay, go, everybody try as hard as you can to get to the finish line. The person who gets there first is the winner. And because not everybody is starting from the same place, it's not really fair to measure where they end up in the same way. And so that's why our family contributes more and some families don't contribute as much and because we're trying to take care of everybody's needs. And I think that idea really resonated with her and I'm starting to see that come out in some of the ways that she's thinking now. So it's not like I'm telling her I, her idea is wrong, but I'm just sharing how I perceive these things. And I think a related issue on this is about teaching financial literacy. And I do work with parents who are absolutely terrified of raising financially illiterate children because their parents did not do this for them and they've made some decisions that have not helped them in their lives. And they want their children to have this skill. And so I guess what I would offer there is we don't have to do everything at once, right? I think there's this real tendency to catastrophize that a lot of companies and organizations really play on that if our children don't get these financial literacy skills when they're young, that things are terrible things are going to happen down the line. And so there was an article when I was researching this that I found, it was published in May 2019 in the New York Times, and it was called Capitalism Camp for Kids. And it describes camps where children can learn to be entrepreneurs. And this Camp for Kids, K-A-M-P, Camp for Kids, is run by the company Biznovator in Florida. And it teaches eight-year-olds how to monetize their hobbies, how to interview corporate executives, how to shoot YouTube commercials for their prospective businesses. There's another one, a nonprofit based in New York called Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. Uh, and I think they pronounce it Nifty. <laughs> and that runs summer programs on opportunity recognition, delivering value to customers. It's running a pitch competition that's a whole lot like Shark Tank. And the organization was founded by billionaire philanthropists and big businesses and consultants and, quote, aims to activate the entrepreneurial mindset and build startup skills in youth. 
And they also aim to create future model employees for these businesses, right? Because the vast majority of people who come out of school are not going to be creating businesses. They're actually going to be employees of these businesses. And so these camps are also sort of making sure that these employees have the skills to understand what's happening, but also just kind of be a cog in the machine of these businesses as well. There's a a camp called Camp Millionaire that's based in Los Angeles, and it's teaching basic financial literacy. And it has the mission statement, quote, we want kids and teens to learn how to be financially savvy before they leave home. So they move out, stay out and become responsible, contributing members of society. And of course, this sounds innocuous enough. I'm like, yes, do I want my child to stay out and move out and stay out? Maybe. Now I've listened to this episode. It might not be as high on my priority list. I want them to be responsible, contributing. Yes, but really what they're talking about is being a part of creating stuff for other people and buying stuff as well, right? And ultimately what we're doing is when we're pushing people to separate, to be in your own house, to be in your own space, what we're actually promoting is disconnection. And this disconnection is a huge part of why we're struggling in life. And when we are feeling disconnected, we could either reach out and try to connect with other people, which is scary, we might get rejected, or we can buy something to assuage that difficult feeling. And that's what capitalism is trying to get us to do, is to separate us and then to get us to buy stuff so that we feel less separate. And so the the person who who runs this Biznovator, his, his name is Casimiro, I think, sees entrepreneurship training as a path to financial literacy, as well as a path to freedom, especially students from low-income communities. He says, we've got to teach them that lesson because what they've been exposed to is multi-generational thinking that government owes me something. We want to change that mindset, he said. And then he goes on, regardless of where and how you were born, with the right support, education, love, mentorship, Kids starting with zero, let's say in poverty, can become extremely successful, he said. I really believe that. And so, yes, some of them can. And in a capitalist mindset, that is entirely their responsibility. It's very easy to imagine the poor black family that he has in his mind as he's saying that, who thinks the government owes them something. And somehow he forgets that this country was built on generations of their ancestors' free labor. And in this view, in his view, capitalism is seen as the savior, right? It's the thing that's going to rescue these poor, deprived children and not as the system that created this division in the first place and perpetuates it now. And so, yes, we want to teach financial literacy because we can't immediately get out of this system But that doesn't have to happen in preschool or even elementary school. (laughs) Maybe we can start from a place of imagining different systems, of being with our children in these creative ways that helps them to answer the questions that they have about capitalism and think about what new ways might be possible and then teach them to operate within the system that we have while we still have it. So I hope that that helps, Kelsey, and other folks who are hearing this question from your children. I know it was kind of an in-depth answer. And I guess overall, the idea that I want to leave you with is that there's not one right way to answer this question, that you can answer it kind of with a sense of lightness when they ask the immediate question. But really what this is, is a series of conversations that every time this topic is coming up, when you read about it in books, when they're talking about something that they've done at school, when they're asking why that people are camping on the side of the road, that each of those instances is an opportunity 
opportunity to have a conversation about what we want the world to be like, because that's ultimately what we're talking about here. And right now, the way that the world is at the moment is not serving a lot of people. And so our job is really to help our children to see Yes, there are some good things that about it. There are some other things that are really not working for a lot of different people. And can we be a part of imagining different systems and creating different systems that really value the work that all people do and not that just some people do? So very much hoping for more conversation on this. If you uh, would like to continue the conversation, come over to the free Facebook group. We have uh, lots of conversations there on episodes. And if you have your own question, you want to me to answer your own question through the research, through kind of a synthesis of, of how I see things through having researched 190 or so episodes, then you can record your own question and either send a video of yourself to support at yourparentingmojo.com. Or if you want to do audio only, just go to yourparentingmojo.com and and look for the button on that page where you can record your question and send it over to us and I will answer it for you if I can. So thanks so much for being here with me and I will look forward to seeing you again soon. Hi, I'm Emma and I'm listening from the UK. We know you have a lot of choices about where you get information about parenting and we're honoured that you've chosen us as we move toward a world in which everyone's lives and contributions are valued. If you'd like to help keep the show ad-free, please do consider making a donation on the episode page that Jen just mentioned. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Your Parenting Mojo podcast.